0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, February 24th, 2022. I am John Podhorts, the editor of Commentary, announcing today that on April 6th in Palm Beach, we will be doing a live podcast. Live podcast. Your whole podcast crew, maybe some special guests will be at the uh will be there for you to watch, to mingle, to ask questions we did one live podcast before this, uh, actually in New York at a comedy club. It was wildly successful. Then COVID hit. And so we, uh, we have, uh, we were stopped in our tracks. If you want to find out details, uh, please go to commentary.org slash live podcast, uh, to register, um, and, uh, put in your credit card information, everything. Uh, it's not a cheap ticket. Uh, we don't want, we want to, uh, make sure that uh, we don't get um, unfriendlies and crazies willing to come in for nothing so uh, uh, but there we are commentary.org live podcast for the april 6th live podcast in palm beach florida Uh, let's see how many of you uh, go there today and i will uh, reveal more details tomorrow with me as always executive editor abe greenwald hi abe Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is out for the rest of the week. Joining us, Washington commentary columnist, AEI scholar, and author of the forthcoming history of the conservative movement in America called The Right, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. So we're going to discuss the many ways in which the uh, calamitous and earth-shaking events of the last 24 hours will Uh, affect the right, uh, the subject of Matt's book, um, and what resonances the history of the right might have with the kinds of politics and policies that might be pursued by conservative politicians, policymakers, and thinkers in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But before we get to that... uh, russia has invaded ukraine and what we don't know is how bad the next 96 hours are going to be because they could be really 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 bad um so far you know there are bombings in uh, seven or eight uh, cities in in ukraine uh things are being lit up in kiev um and in kharkiv um noah what's your What's your take on the initial uh, outbreak? Uh, so I guess I was awake until about
1: three thirty uh, trying to follow things uh, last night. So I'm a little loopy this morning. Bear with me. Um, generally, the uh, outlook has been, I don't know, perhaps a little less intensive initially than um, I think American commanders and general observers uh, anticipated. There was no initial shock and awe campaign. Um, What broke out last night was uh, a series of targeted strikes on command and control, uh, uh, implements and and uh, anti-aircraft positions throughout the country, including uh, on the borders of Poland, um, little islands that uh, are basically right outside Romania sending some very disturbing signals to NATO allies. Uh, all this broke out uh, following uh, Vladimir Putin's declaration of war in a pre-taped message that was looks like it was taped uh, the very same day that we had this uh, parade of members of the regime uh, and uh, endorsing the recognition of these two breakaway republics. So it's not as... Uh, it was kind of... Uh, half-enthusiastic uh, half declaration of an emergency measure that occurred you know, several days later, uh, several days earlier, rather. Um, but some rather disturbing language was used there. Um, Vladimir Putin said the mission that Russian forces are engaged in is to demilitarize Ukraine and also to de- denazify Ukraine, um, which is a strange thing to say about a country with a Jewish president. Uh, it's code for um, the, a sustained campaign of retribution against Ukrainian nationalists. Uh, If it's it's close to the sort of thing that we said uh, American intelligence warned of last week, um, which involved the rounding up of enemies of the Kremlin inside of Ukraine, killing them and sending others to camps. um, We should be very worried. Uh, American intelligence has played out within an ACE so far. So I don't think we can dismiss that as a potential uh, issue we're seeing streams of people, um, millions of Ukrainians advance on NATO's borders as expected, as anticipated. Uh, we've only begun to see the, uh, the, very, uh, the horrors that this campaign will unleash. And right now, as we speak, uh, Russian armored units are advancing on Kiev, uh, having all but surrounded Ukrainian forces, most of which are located in the east surrounding these separatist areas, uh, so that they can't fall back and defend Kiev. Um, we knew that Uh, Ukraine couldn't hold out for very long. They're doing a very good job in the initial hours of this campaign, making this campaign very costly for Russia. But um, there is no doubt about the outcome uh, in the initial phase of this conflict. The only doubt is how we will respond to an occupied Ukraine. And right now, as far as I understand it, uh, supporting an insurgency on the continent is very much a live issue. And I shudder to think of what that will unleash in the months and even years to come.
2: Matt, we're... uh... What's your take? Well, I think one of the key points uh, uh, Noah already laid out, which is that so far, uh, U.S. intelligence has been pretty much on the mark. Um, And there may have been a delay, in fact, in the uh, uh, beginning of hostilities, precisely because... (laughs) Uh, we were tracking uh, Russia's activities so well. Uh, some One intelligence expert I was speaking to the other day said he was bidding, beginning to get a little bit worried that some of the intel, intel might be stovepiped because our sources were so uh, accurate. Um, and that may explain why Putin recorded the speech on Monday and then timed the delivery to coincide, of course, with the emergency UN Security Council meeting. Uh, last night. Uh, I I think uh, right now we need a moment of um, radical intellectual humility because we don't know what's going to happen next. Um, We don't know what the uh, offensive will look like. We don't know whether it's going to spill over into the NATO allies who border Ukraine. Uh, We don't know uh, Vladimir Putin's mental state. And this is where I've become very concerned over the last week, I think, um, I'd say. Uh, If you look at Putin, there's a certain historical development. He comes to power in 2000. And for the first few years of his term, um, he was a pragmatist. He actually was cooperating with the Bush administration. He was open to NATO enlargement. He was participating in the NATO-Russia Council. And then he became the Putin that we're more familiar with which is Putin, the opportunist. And this began, I really believe, uh, around the time of the color revolutions uh, in Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, and then of course the, the big one in Ukraine in 2004. Something switched in Putin at that moment. He realized that democracy posed a threat to his regime in Russia, and he became much more antagonistic toward the West. Uh, as was he expressed in his speech to the, uh, to the Munich Security Conference in 2007. And so that's the Putin we've known because that's the Putin that um, invaded Georgia in 2008, the Putin who seized Crimea in 2014, who intervened in Syria in 2015. You know, he, he, he would size up his uh, adversaries and then in moments of opportunity, he would move in. But he would move in, um, you know, uh, rather um, adroitly, um, a few troops, you know, little green men, um, just causing trouble for the West. Putin, of the last few months, uh, does not seem like an opportunist. Uh, he seems more like a maniac. And uh, you can see that in the essay that he published, uh, uh, t- discussing the unity of Russia and Ukraine. And then you see that in the, in the Security Council meeting, uh, which was uh, you know, reminiscent of uh, a Stalin uh, era show trial uh, with his dressing down of the intelligence chief. Um, you, you see it in um, the speech he gave, uh, throwing out the denazification and the rants um, against the West. And it gets to this question that we've seen some reporting about um, from some of the Europeans who were involved in the shuttle diplomacy over the past few weeks. Um, saying to reporters that Putin the person is different. That is, he, he's been under such isolation um, because of the coronavirus um, that all of his paranoid instincts may have been um, strengthened and, uh, and warped him even more. And, and, and that gives off strong Saddam vibes to me. And, and that's why I'm truly, I am truly believe we, we just need to take a moment where we're not making any predictions, we're just following events, and then we're thinking about the best way to improve
3: the American position vis-a-vis those events. I, I think Matt has just laid out the most compelling case for, for Putin being a maniac, which is something I, I've resisted uh, thinking uh, this whole time, and I'm, and I'm still uh, very much on the fence about, because even in the his early days of the the, the t- kind of cooperation you describe, it was um, cosmetic. I mean, it was it was functionally real, but there was there was certainly enough in his background, um, in his training that that at the time there were many people, uh, learned people, and, and sort of uh, scholars of of, of Putin and the Kremlin, who said, "Don't believe it. This guy is uh, uh, a revanchist. Um, uh, he's romantic about the Soviet Union, and he cannot be trusted." And I, I, so I, I don't know if 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 there's a actual personality shift here, or what I think is at least certainly the case is that he's seems to be sort of growing into his own myth, having having spent this long in power, having gained in popularity, having become a larger player um, on the world stage, is that its own kind of mania, uh, maybe. But th- the reason I'm hesitant to, to think of him as a maniac is in part because I think when you do that, um, you can sort of, you, you can begin to get things wrong. Um, you, you can, um, Sort of plan for for acts that 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 aren't going to materialize you can you want to count on some kind of blunders uh that that may not be there i think i think one of the one of the reasons we're tempted to look at him as a maniac is, is because he is a risk taker and, and it takes big risks and big gambles and to our way of thinking understandably that seems crazy in itself but it, it's not necessarily so
0: i mean i, I you know I guess it doesn't matter all that much uh, whether he's crazy or not unless unless being crazy or being a maniac or being isolated or something like that will have uh, internal repercussions as the uh, Russian military and Russian intelligence and all that have to cope with trying to satisfy him uh, when if he has uh, slipped, you know, if he sort of slipped the bonds of reality. On the other hand, you can sort of look at this and see this There's an entirely rational set of long term calculations that he had decided years ago that what he wanted to do was um, restore the near abroad uh, in a Soviet sphere of influence and every move that he has taken before this to secure that aim uh, has been met with uh, timidity and uh, a lack of seriousness of purpose by the international community in the West and the powers of the West, which have not acted very potently to counteract the kinds of moves that he's made. And so you could say that he had tested the boundaries of what was permissible for him. Oh, really since 2008 and his incursion into Georgia and never found and found the ground increasingly, Soft um, and the and the atmosphere increasingly favorable to him. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me, making the final move. Well,
1: look, I mean, if, if you're talking about rationality and rationality is the predicate upon which deterrence is based, if it doesn't matter whether he's crazy or not, it matters whether he's rational in the sense that he has made, as you say, if he's a rational actor, he has made a determination that he will absorb a lot of bloodshed a lot of damage to his state's credibility, a lot of international isolation to re, reacquire former Soviet possessions. Um, that's a terrifying prospect because our, our understanding of what a rational actor would do in this situation is not what he's doing. So we need to either reassess our understanding of what rationality is and his vision uh, for precisely the threshold of pain he is willing to endure in this conquest uh, and act accordingly. Because if we haven't established that, then an equilibrium is not, we don't have deterrence. We can't reestablish deterrence. We haven't discovered the equilibrium there. And we're going to have to continue to test each other until we find it.
2: And that's really,
1: really dangerous.
2: I, just, I was struck you know, by, uh, by the line in his speech where he basically threatened nuclear war if um the west becomes involved in in the nato con- uh, in the ukraine conflict um that i mean that's a uh, nikita Khrushchev style we will bury you <laughs> you know um that, that is that is echoes of uh bad history uh that are very much alive now in the year 2022 and um i i you know, what does it mean? I actually think the writer Demir Marusich wrote a good essay about, you know, this question that is the uh, psychological trajectory I laid out the best way to understand him. Uh, and uh, he came to the conclusion that, that many of you did, which is, you know, essentially, well, what does it matter if he's crazy or not? Um, uh, we have to deal with the events as they unfold. I will say this though, when you deal with a crazy state, there is only one thing that ever stops them. And that is force. And um, this is not Iran. This is you know this is not an impoverished, forty-year-old uh, theocracy uh, that is attempting to acquire nuclear weapons through this decades-long drawn-out negotiation with the West and trying to bring you know get payoffs from the West. Um, this this is Russia, uh, as Putin said. They are nuclear power. They are testing hypersonics, and um, he the at the boldness of the move is again is, is very different than you know sending the tanks right up to Tbilisi and then pulling them back and uh, or just you know dropping the little green men in Syria and then starting an air cover campaign surrounds the country on three Ukraine surrounds it on three sides launches amphibious assaults um, and then makes these big big claims about denazification. Um, it's it, it. It's a moment where you have to start thinking: How can this spill over? You know, and um, and look, I, the parallels to the to the first Gulf War, I think, are interesting. Um, and, and and the reinforcement of places like Romania and Poland and the Baltics is going to happen uh, in the coming months. Right. I would just like to lay out the idea that there is something
0: systematic going on here. This would counter the maniac theory. Now, granted, he could be a megalomaniac. It could be crazy talking to him. You know, he could have had all sorts of um, COVID isolation that has led him into (coughs) greater uh, feats of, uh, you know, and also pressure, whatever, you know, uh, more solipsism. But if you look at this career, he is now sort of like the longest serving world leader, uh, I believe. uh, uh, he And if you look at it, it's kind of systematic. Um, he came in, he jump-started the economy to the extent that it was possible. He then created a new category of friend and ally in the people whom he empowered to get rich. Um, and once they were rich and once they were uh, in a position maybe to challenge him, he then started to choke them off control them, contain them, make examples of them, drive them out of the country, try to kill them uh, abroad, imprison them at home. And similarly with uh, the structures of democracy, once he established his sea legs and became popular, then he started to destroy and attack the institutions of democracy, a free press, creating an alternate press, uh, creating a state groveling press, uh, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, going after demonstrators who came, uh, came at him in 2008 and 2009, and then basically um, uh, choked off over time every possible avenue for there to be domest- expressions of domestic discontent at his actions, while getting more bolder and bolder in his assertions of Russian supremacy outside Russia's borders that went as far as Syria, but certainly, you know, uh, you know, had to do with um, Lukashenko in, in Belarus, who, who predated him, you know, was in power from the from the from the mid 90s seeming like an older brother now to seeming like, you know, a cow, you know, Fredo, you know, he was like once Sonny and he's now Fredo, uh, his sort of uh, cat's paw. And, and, um, and so all of this seems if you wanted to look at it from a long term perspective, it was all building up to this, it was all a creation of a world internally and in his near abroad and in his relations with the West uh, that he finally got to the point where he could take the big risk that he always wanted to take, which is to sort of reassert uh, a Russian nationalist view of the, you know, uh, even pre-Soviet view. I mean, uh, Richard Pipes would have said that this was, Richard Pipes would have viewed him <clears throat> in the prism as he did of the of the, of the the Soviets <clears throat> of a, in a non-ideological prison of Russian expansionism dating back to Catherine the Great, and that what he sees as a seventy-year-old man is the possibility of leaving as the great, one of the great figures in Russian history, comparable to Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, Lenin, and Stalin. Like he, he would be he he would be in the history books forever, and uh, and that this is a two-decade-long progression to this point that could have been stymied. At many points along the way, and as I think people are waking up to, uh, the lack of seriousness with which the threat that he posed was taken, you know, he went out and had somebody poison people in in Britain. Did Britain really, I mean, so Britain threw some sanctions, did Britain actually do anything to stymie Russia's international ambitions after its soil was used to stage an assassination attempt? (laughs) Uh, using, you know, using chemical weapons, Uh, you know, time and again, we see a lack of response to his behavior, not just a lack of response. Barack Obama let Putin, let him off the hook on the red line in Syria, went to Putin to guarantee that Bashar al-Assad would no longer you, because he said, if you cross this line, we're going to have to do something about it. And then Assad crossed the line and said, yeah, what are you going to do about it? And he was like, okay, I'll let Russia handle it. I mean, so wh- why wouldn't he think of us as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, uh, the West as being unserious and, you know, uh, unwilling to face down um, an irredentist revolutionary challenge to the world order? Because we aren't serious and we don't, we didn't face it down. And we let this happen. And now... Now Ukraine is going to reap the whirlwind with these unanticipatable consequences toward those NATO countries that joined after the Cold War ended and the Baltic states and uh, God knows who else. So I I don't know. I mean, that's why I say it doesn't really matter. I mean, you can look at it either way. He's either gone crazy or he's fulfilling a lifelong ambition the question is will the russians be good at this will this be a militarily effective invasion will they do what is necessary to pacify ukraine will there be an internal revolt against the savagery that they're presumably going to have to show in order to try to crush the ukrainian national spirit and get the war over as soon as possible with ukraine swallowed up by russia we don't know any of that. We don't know how good they are, for one thing. We genuinely don't. Like this is this is not a this is not a.
2: Well, let, that,
0: we're it, talking about a pl- a
1: country that's roughly the size of Texas, and I mean two hundred thousand soldiers, mechanized infantry, paratroopers There's nothing to sneeze at. But by contrast, the first Gulf War involved six hundred and fifteen thousand soldiers. To not even pacify, not even pacify Iraq. But the, the second Iraq war was very similar, about a half a million soldiers to occupy this country. It's not it's not a giant force. It's an occupation force, but it's not overwhelming Colin Powell style of, you know, suffocating amounts of soldiers on on every street corner. And Ukraine has been arming civilians for weeks. They're they're still doing it. Um, Yeah, You don't know what an insurgency would look like if the insurgency materializes, but it's not unreasonable. It's something that Western officials have talked about openly supporting, endorsing, supplying materially. And the American or or Ukrainians have been readying for this. And we can expect, I think we can absolutely speculate in the near term future that there will be um, counter force action behind
0: enemy lines. Okay, but so, yeah, Ukraine is a has a population of 45 million. It's the size of Texas. and It's got a very long shoreline and it's got borders with a lot of different countries. And some of that is useful to Russia and some of it may not be useful to Russia. Some of it may be harmful to Russia. And, you know, it's one thing Kuwait, uh, which, you know, uh, uh, Iraq went into and then we went into and then pushed Iraq out of. Kuwait had 3 million people. And it was mostly unpopulated, you know, it was mostly sand. And so, you know, uh, that was an entirely different kind of thing. Like this really is street. I mean, the possibility now, if the Soviet, if the Russians can make, can, can establish total aerial dominance, uh, the kind of damage that they can inflict at in a place like Kiev or Kharkiv or whatever, it, you know, is like un, un, unthinkable. I mean, the real question is whether ukrainian
1: forces routed uh retreat to the cities and prepare urban warfare well, well but, when we but john's about- point
2: is that urban warfare is unnecessary in a scenario where russia has air supremacy which if you look Help. at what what they've been doing over the last 12 hours it appears that's their aim is to establish air supremacy and then you have what they did in afghanistan in the early 80s and then you have what they've done in syria since 2015, which is, it doesn't matter if you have urban people in the cities because you just level the cities. That's what Russians do. And the, that, I mean, that's the horror. That's the horror that Blinken has been talking about. Um, if that's the strategy. I mean, we don't know what what the strategy can be. We also don't know because of hybrid warfare and the techniques of maskarovka, where they, you know, they could just all of a sudden, you know, um, the Ukrainian media stops. <laughs> And, ukraine, and media uh, stops
0: all, all right. command control cell phone stops. <laughs> yeah everything
1: There's
2: we no anticipated that
0: right.
1: happening already
0: yeah ukraine right. should have been a black but hole but it's going to make ukraine easier for the russians
2: yeah. to conquer when they but when i mean they,
0: the, the whole point is we we can imagine and we have all this clearly very very good intelligence of what's what's going on that as you say is so good maybe it's been stovepipe meaning they want us to know what they're up to but no country will ever have gone through this I mean, th- this this technique of, you know, essentially now, of course, breaking communications between the front and the fighters and all this, that, that is a, a long time cutting armies off from information and all that. That's, that's you know, from time immemorials, so part of war strategy. But if you can literally level a modern country's ability to, you know, communicate block by block and you don't have any, you don't have alternate <laughs> means, of communication we just we just have never seen this before like this is not a third this is not afghanistan it's not kuwait this is a it's not exactly a first world country but it's pretty close to being a first world country and 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 it lives uh and dies by the same things that we would live and die by now it's got a history of hating russia it's got a history of having been you know have millions die in a russian engineered famine to subsume it it's got a memory of, of of what it is to live under the live under the Russian yoke that will um that will power a lot of resistance but it may be that the resistance we just don't know we don't know that the resistance can be effective depending on how good that they, they may not be good at this like this is the first again if this is the first time anybody's ever really going to try this that doesn't mean that they're going to know how to do it well and they're not us. And yes, they're testing hypersonics and all this, but they're also not particularly technologically competent as far as we understand it. You know, there is that whole point of, you know, they have had uh, in the 30 years since the Cold War hit, like they, they there have been no great technological advancements of anything that came out of Russia. No new cell phone, no new, you know, no new set-top box for your cable, no new car, nothing. Like it's not had a great history as a as an advancing civilization,
2: but the one thing they're willing to do th- is break all the norms of behavior and of war and of international relations. And so I, I hear you. Yeah, it's uh, people like to say, "Oh, it, you know, it's uh, Russia is a gas station with an army," yeah. but um, it's a gas station with a very large army that he has poured a lot of money into, and that has had a lot of experience. Actually, if you yeah. just going back to two thousand eight, um, and it's run by a, a someone whose um, mental state, regardless of his mental state, we the West's elites clearly
3: have not comprehended. Right, right. Over twenty years, and, it, and in this particular operation, you also have to consider that the the buildup has been methodical and thought out in advance probably much longer in advance than 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 where than we've sort of been prone to 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 realize so i don't think yes i'd love to see russian incompetence here but i don't think it's 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 uh, it's good to bank on it
0: i'm not banking on it i'm just saying that that there's all kinds of unknowns here and war features all kinds of unknowns and that's one of the that's one of the qualities of war is that no war everybody always fights the last war which means not that there is a last war here except world war ii but everybody so you never know what new thing uh is deployable and we also don't know what to be honest we don't know what arrows we have in our quiver there's a lot of stuff that we do that we have that we have developed that is unknown to us not just in terms of intelligence, but in terms of weaponry, defensive and offensive. There's a lot of black box stuff that that the United States has developed. Uh, that um, you know, this is the time when we might have to smash the you know smash the glass and push and push the you know push the red button to do some stuff that has never been done before to try to retard this. If we really think that it's a cakewalk and that he's going to, you know, roll over Ukraine and then keep going, you know? Um,
3: then I, I have to say this, if, if that happens, and certainly if, if his, if Putin's actions prove that indeed he is a madman and he's going to approach this like a madman, then the conversation about us force has to change. Uh, it's, it's not something I readily say because yeah. I'm not, I'm not looking forward to the, Oh, you just want war. I, t- I told you that you wanted Americans to die for this. But if what we're talking about is, is going to be um, some sort of reality on the ground, then at least the conversation about it is, is going to change.
0: See, I'm not even talking about I mean, could we we have, there are different ways of talking about U.S. force, right? I mean, there is the question of actual human beings engaging other human beings on the other side in some kind of that is like that's generally speaking what you mean when you say you're committing us forces i'm talking about other stuff that we don't like i said that half of we don't really know about unmanned aircraft uh, is that the same as using manned aircraft i don't know in 1998 we spent 48 days bombing uh in the former yugoslavia <clears throat> to end the civil war there uh You know, not a single human being engaged with another human being. Like we just bombed every position that we could find. Now, I don't suppose we're going to do that because that does raise the specter of Putin's threat to himself, you know, start looking at means that we would be previously unthinkable. But there's a lot we can do short of that. And then, of course, that then gets the question of what are the frontline countries? Gonna do. I mean, the front line countries, meaning Romania, Poland, uh, the Baltics. Like, well, Lithuania
1: has already invoked articles Four of the NATO treaty, which <laughs> requires all parties to consent to a uh, consultation over security risks, um, which is a necessary precursor to the invocation of Article Five. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon in the absence of a direct attack on NATO forces, but. You know, they're not sitting around taking this lying down. Uh, and it was really foolish on the part of Western the Western Commentariat to assume that this conflict, which we're very isolated from you know, behind our two oceans, um, wouldn't be a five alarm fire in the NATO frontier. It absolutely but is, is it?
0: Is it a five alarm fire? So there's a story to in the New New I'm telling this is. morning, but there's a story in The New York Times this morning about sanctions that says that already. Italy is asking for a carve-out from sanctions for luxury goods, meaning they still want to sell Gucci handbags to Russian the wives of Russian oligarchs. And Belgium wants a carve-out for diamonds. Yeah, this is not the frontier. So,
1: You're describing Old Europe, Western Europe. The frontier is, as you say, Poland, Romania,
0: okay. Bulgaria, okay. the okay. Baltics. But that's NATO. These are NATO sanctions. And if, if NATO countries aren't even willing to say... Sorry, we're going to stop selling handbags for a while. We're not going to be exporting diamonds to Russia. We're letting Russians buy our diamonds right now. If those are seen as too grievous a price to pay, I, I, am, I am, it's so far either, either the reality hasn't hit them yet, which is possible. and The gravity of the situation, the threat to them hasn't hit them yet. Or... The idea that we are actually going to be able to take a resolute multi-country stance that really, really, really chokes the Russian economy until it's dead. I don't we are going to have to revisit the idea that that is something. Look, nobody uh, listening to this podcast underestimates European pusillanimity.
1: We all understand what their instincts are here. But a carve out for diamonds, for example, negotiating that away is a much easier lift than convincing Germany to abandon Nord Stream 2, which they did. That's an incredible diplomatic success on the part of Western negotiators and likely on the part of the Biden administration. And that's a he- far heavier lift than luxury goods. Italy's going to be a- more difficult because this is talk. This is about energy. But if we were yeah, very serious, we'd have an energy policy to accompany this. Energy is the sticking right. point, not diamonds.
2: I also right. think that the reality just hasn't set in because right. Putin's not going to stop with Ukraine.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> if, if, he, if he decapitates the government, if Zelensky flees Ukraine, if there's a rump free Ukraine around Lvov and, you know, half of three quarters of the country is under Russian occupation, Putin's maximalist aims, one is to show that NATO is a paper tiger, which he's, which to John's point, he's already starting to do. But two, Um, there are other parts of the Russian empire that are free. And there's these countries called the Baltic states that are free, and they're small, but they have US troops in them, and they're NATO allies. And then you also have this very large country called Poland, which has a very complicated history, and is one of these countries that, you know, a nation that doesn't always exist as a state, and so has long memories of that. So I think you can easily have pusillanimity, excellent word, Noah, on the part of old Europe, accompanied by um, just uh, free, free agents uh, on, and on the part of new Europe, to unpredicted actions on the part of the, the, these new additions to NATO to which we are committed. And to it, I, I believe, have a better sense of what the stakes are here than the elites in Italy or Hungary or Germany or France. Right. Uh, I want to
0: talk more about you know the international community's response and some of the things that happened last night. But first, I want to uh, commend to everybody, uh, particularly now, particularly with everything that's going on here, Dan Sinor's Call Me Back podcast, his most uh, recent episode. Um, he was in Israel and had a long and fascinating chat with Yaakov Katz, a commentary contributor, editor of the Jerusalem Post. And a lot of this had to do with... Uh, Israel and Russia and what uh, the complicated relationships uh, between uh, Israel and Russia, which are friendlier than you might uh, expect and anticipate um, uh, and uh, a quiet sort of um, back channel communications between Israel and Russia over goings on in Syria to make sure that there's no engagement between the two of them and um, uh, and the whole question that is raised here is what what lessons can can be drawn from Israel's fight uh, over the last forty or fifty years, uh, and and Ukraine's Ukraine's fight. Like, uh, what, what do we know? What will Israel, which of course is the most powerful military country, you know, uh, in the Middle East, now. Um, uh, what will Israel do in relation to Iran if, if Russia, Iran's chief sponsor, and of course this is the sixty-four thousand dollar question now going forward to next week, which is this um, purported uh, possible announcement of the Iran of a revival of the Iran nuclear deal that I- in which Russia will serve as a guarantor of the deal? Like, can we make? Can we be in some kind of diplomatic? entente with Russia with Iran next week when we're basically we're not ourselves at war whether we're siding with the country that Russia is attempting to destroy um, uh, what will Israel feel itself it, it, it will have to do if it has to go it alone in that way if America does split off anyway these are many of the topics raised by this fascinating conversation between Dan Sino and Yaakov Katz on the Call Me Back podcast, uh, subscribe Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcast. And, uh, and so let's move on to, uh, you know, the amazing moment last night, uh, when, uh, uh, Sergei uh, Kizlitsa, the Ukrainian ambassador to the UN, uh, pointed at the, uh, russian chief of the uh of nebenzia who is the russian ambassador who is sitting in the chair of the security council because it is now russia's turn to be in the chair seat of the un security council and said um there is no purgatory for war criminals uh he said uh Kizlitsa said as he called on nebenzia to relinquish his duties as chairman of the meeting They go straight to hell, ambassador. They go straight to hell. Uh, Pretty amazing moment and does raise this question of what's going to happen in these international fora, in these international, in this world of knit together international organizations and stuff in which Russia is a prominent player if the entire world has to turn against Russia. Um,
1: I feel like the whole internationalist uh, view, the in- institutionalist view, I suppose, of international affairs would argue that e- this isn't happening, that none of this is happening because none of it fits within a theory of modern international relations that we understand it. As far as, far as the construction, the constructivist view would be that we are knit together with a series of theoretical concepts like international law that really don't exist and dissolve in the face of one display of brazen hard power
0: well look so you know there are a couple of interesting examples of this weird this can't be happening because it just disagrees with my sense of how the world works uh the the one of the comic ones that I saw um is um uh, E.J. Dion uh, in the Washington Post who says you know Clever short-term tactics are not long-term strategies. Putin may have the Ukraine and the West in a tough spot, but he has created circumstances that could lead to his undoing as long as the democracies stay focused and united. And what is it that he means? He means that liberals in Europe uh, are are really mad. Uh, Liberals are mad and they don't like it and they don't like how Putin doesn't like LGBTQ rights. And, um, you know, and uh, this is... um, uh oh, boy! Because uh, liberal leaders and union people and uh, uh, all kinds of people are just not going to stand there. Even the Greens uh, are are now uh, anti-Putin uh, in Germany. So you know, oh boy, he is he is really he's really in trouble now. Like that's what's making Putin quake, and is that's what's going to destroy Putin is the European left. I mean, I know it's a it's ridiculous to cite one op ed, but it it gives you a sense of and there's a lot of this like Putin is delusional, like we he's made a dangerous miscalculation. Why is it? Why? Why do we have to look at this and say it's prima facie miscalculation? I mean, it's
2: it's also been fascinating to watch some of the voices of the realists, uh, the foreign policy realists who for the past several months have been saying no way putin's going to do this huge bluff huge bluff putin's a, you know putin is calculating his vital interests according to realist principles and uh, this is just a huge bluff and there's no way he's going to do that and this you know the liberal internationalists and the neoconservatives are just once again warmongering and then, and then Putin goes ahead and does it. Uh, so I've been paying attention to them as well. And of course, they've already shifted the goalposts. Now it's first they're arguing oh, Putin will never do it. And now it's like, well, the U.S. has already lost. You know, big, big winner is China now. You know, um, there's a lot of people who should not be taken credibly after this. The and,
1: entire international relations right. theory, the entire the industry Does not recognize, it's like the Westworld robots, you know, looking at their own specs. They don't recognize a war of naked territorial acquisition, of conquest, of, of subordinating a foreign peoples who are to be subsumed within an identity and a social covenant that is not of their choosing. This doesn't happen anymore, and yet it is.
0: Right. Well, I mean, so Richard Haas has a has a, has a a piece ahead of the Council on Foreign Relations in which he says, look, there are wars of necessity and there are wars of choice. Like World War II was a war of necessity. And, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan and Vietnam were wars of choice. And here we have another war of choice. And, you know, war of choices don't go well for the most part. They don't go well. And so, you know, we have to make sure that Putin feels the pain. Calling using these categories that exist uh, in a frame for the United States, a democratic country in which the people rule, as opposed to a classic pre-modern war, which is what this is. Why do you go in to take the territory and take another country's place and take it? Because that's what you do like you breathe. That was Europe for a thousand years. That was Alsace-Lorraine and, you know, the Lowlands. I mean, why did they do it? Like, if you read the Duke de Saint-Simon's memoirs, they did it because it was spring. It was spring and it was time to go to war because that's what you did, because there was nothing else to do. We we moved away from this theoretical construct, practical reality, because the world saw two wars that were so horrifying and terrifying that even the losers thought we can never do this again actually
1: i I submit that that's that's incorrect the framework that we should be viewing this through is the fact that we've had 70 years of peace on the continent because of the preponderate power
0: of the united states i agree i agree power all the way up and down the line is all that matters i i do not disagree but what what i'm saying is we are now 77 years from the moment at which World War II ended. and Vladimir Putin is 70. So he knows the history, knows the same way we know the history and we know the and all of that. And it's like, you know what? all that other stuff, that sounds pretty good to me. I'm just gonna go take Ukraine now. That's what the Czars did. You know, read Anna Karenina, the, the, you know, the entire Anna Karenina is about liberals in Russia in the 1870s being upset because Russia has decided to try to rescue Russians in Bulgaria. You know, I mean, like the the same sort of pretext for imperial action, like this is the norm. What we've lived through over the last 70 years, this is a Jonah Goldberg's point in Suicide of the Way, what we've lived through is abnormal. This is, again, why I think the Putin crazy thing is, is something you don't really want. In historical terms, what Putin is doing is normal. In historical terms, what the West is doing in relation to Putin is not normal. Um, you know, what Ukraine will do in relation to Putin is normal. It will do what it can to oust him or fight back against him or whatever. But, uh, you know, we, we, as you say, like, we, the world has changed. And the question is when the world is going to know that it's already changed. There's this moment, there's an essay by George Orwell, I can't remember which one, um, that begins with this very savage story about himself as a kid, where there's a, a bug or a fly or something like that that has landed and is eating jam on his plate, and he cuts the bug in half. And the bug doesn't know that the bug has been cut in half until it starts to try to move and then cut in half it panics and it starts going absolutely crazy and running around you know doing what it can to move and then dies uh and this is the sort of image that comes to mind when you think about what happens when something unthinkable happens that you're that you simply haven't prepared for uh where are we in this scenario? I mean, and, and what is going to happen with us, Matt, uh, turning toward your, the subject of your last four years of study, uh, uh, the history of the conservative movement, we of course see this unbelievably vulgar and kind of horrifyingly low rent uh, attack on The anti-Putin arguments or the anti-Russian arguments or something like that on the part of this weird uh, coalition of the unwilling featuring Tucker Carlson and the Natcons and J.D. Vance and uh, I don't know, a couple of other people, um, which is really low rent. Like, I mean, it's like they're not even couching this in some sort of high flown you know terminology it's just you know uh did, did uh, you know did Vladimir Putin like not let your kids go to school why should you hate him you know hate hate the school board of Alameda County
2: you know well, and my are- favorite was uh, Candace Owens uh who says we should invade Canada which, which you know I mean if one upshot of this World War III is that America gets Alberta you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be disappointed. <laughs> that also, would be Greenland. That would you know, I've been pushing for us to get Greenland for yeah. years, you know, so if at the, if at the resolution of this war, we, we come out with those two provinces, I'll be happy. um Yeah, you're right. There's kind of a non and non, non quality to a lot of these anti-anti-Putin arguments, you know, it's like, well, what about the problems of our country? Okay, well, you know, we can talk about those problems, and then there's also this gigantic problem of a, of a, a massive land invasion in Europe for the first time in 75 years. There's a long-standing uh, tradition of non-interventionism, of uh, even of anti-anti-communism and now anti-anti-Putinism uh, on the right. Um, it was uh, it was expunged for the for the most part. It was suppressed during the Cold War, uh, and the the conservative movement during the Cold War was um, what uh, the historian Alan Lichtman calls uh, uh, engaged nationalists. That is, they believed in American unilateralism, they believed in American strength and and looking toward American interests, but they were also engaged in the world. They believed in forward defense, they believed in alliances like NATO, and they believed in a system of um, uh, relatively free and open trade to support our allies. you know, we were talking in the previous conversation about different wars and settlement after the war. The settlement that uh, Putin is looking to change and that is the source of his grievances is not the post World post-World War II settlements, the post Cold War settlement. It's the post Soviet collapse settlement. And um, much like other dictators who are upset at the way their uh, the state of their country in the aftermath of a loss, a catastrophic loss, uh, he has been seeking to. Um revise that settlement. And it's interesting to me that in the post-Cold War moment, really beginning in, you know, 1989 with the collapse of the Berlin Wall, but then in the early 90s as well with George H.W. Bush's presidency, all of the um, old uh, non-interventionist uh, neo-isolationist traditions of the right came into play. And we saw them in Pat Buchanan's multiple presidential campaigns. We saw them in the Ron Paul movement uh, that... Uh, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, and of course, most re- recently we've seen them in uh, slightly qualified terms of the, Trump, of the Trump phenomenon. So first thing I would say is nothing about this is new. Uh, the second thing I would say is social media is new. And so these arguments are much more live. And uh, also the rights institutions have changed as a result of Trump. And so you have Tucker Carlson on Fox every hour, basically parroting the Kremlin line. Which you would not have had in a pre-Trump Fox News, um, completely you parroting the Kremlin line. you to would just not that. have, you wouldn't have it. And so, um, the even though the arguments are very old, the circumstances are rather new, uh, uh, and this poses a real problem, I think, for the, for the American right.
0: Uh, I, let I, me I, just I, let me just interrupt you now, just to talk to everybody about Wealthfront, our second advertiser. Um, Because the beginning of a new year is a great time to finally start things like new workout routines and and, uh, diets and thinking about your financial future. Um, You can start investing in no time in 2022 with Wealthfront's classic portfolio or make it your own with things you care about like socially responsible funds, technology, crypto trust or hundreds of other investments. That's Wealthfront. Dot com designed by financial experts to help you turn your good ideas into great investments without the hassle of doing everything yourself. Don't want to spend hundreds of hours trying to lower your tax bill. They help you do that. Not sure how to rebalance your portfolio or what rebalancing is. They do it for you automatically. Wealthfront is trusted with over 28 billion in assets, helping nearly half a million people build their wealth. And the best part is their product is so simple yet powerful. It has a 4.9 out of 5 stars in the Apple App Store. So to start building your wealth. And get your first $5,000 managed for free for life. Go to Wealthfront.com slash commentary. That's W-E-A-L-T-H-F-R-O-N-T dot com slash commentary to start building your wealth. Go to Wealthfront.com slash commentary to get started today. Go ahead, Noah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Abe actually had a point he wanted to bring up. Okay. And I'll jump in. Thanks. Uh,
3: One of the new circumstances um, that's related to what Matt is talking about here because it has to do with social media and media, is that the left so amplifies these voices on the right as stand-ins for the entire right. And it's frustrating me to no end. But it's also scaring me because there is a trend whereby somehow by some alchemical process, when there's an effort to label things in this way, It kind of transforms them in in the way predicted. And I I have this terrible fear that through the repeated claim that the right is is just this pro-Putin body, we will see the sort of the voices like Tucker's grow ever louder, spread on the right. It's a very dangerous thing to try to zing the other party in this way.
1: Well, Abe, you brought up a point in our <laughs> text thread that I thought was really astute the other night when we were talking about one random silly thing that Tucker Carlson had said, uh, that they may be very badly overplaying their hand when it comes to appealing to the Republican base. We don't have any objective metric, no polling, that suggests the nationalist argument here, which which mirrors to the point of being indistinguishable, the Kremlin argument, is appealing to the American right. Um, we see a lot of, uh, of Republicans saying Joe Biden isn't forceful enough with Putin. Putin is an adversary of the United States, an enemy of the United States, a competitor of the United States—certainly not a partner. This applies to a very small sliver of the population. And then you had an argument that that Carlson made last night. He's the smartest of the of the people articulating this. There's a lot of folks like Candace Owens who just don't understand this, so they apply a heuristic to navigating this complex issue by you know just superimposing their domestic political adversaries on uh, whoever's you know engaged in, in combat in Eastern Europe. But Carlson last night makes the argument, utterly unfounded, baseless, that uh, modern Ukraine is uh, essentially a client state of the uh, State Department. It doesn't really have its own national identity. It's a, a fabrication of American foreign policy. That is literally what Vladimir Putin says and members of the Duma who have said, we don't share a border with Ukraine, we share a border with the United States that's their their articulation of the casus belli here is that th- this is just a creation of american foreign policy and it doesn't really have a national identity and shouldn't exist um, <clears throat> it's not true it's a it's a calumny it's a slander but would it be so terrible i mean we're literally articulating here that the american national interest the state department the instrument of our foreign policy is is busily at work securing our interests abroad and that's bad and we should oppose it that's his, his that's his his claim here is that you should hate American foreign policy and American foreign policy objectives. Does that resonate with the American right? This is Chomsky territory.
2: Well, there, well, there is, is one change too, which I should mention. which is the right has begin beginning to mimic the new, the the new left of the, of the sixties and early seventies in, in various ways uh, to the point of, you know, uh, the disruptive protests, um, uh, some of the, um, you know, the embrace of transgression is a new left uh, characteristic. And if you read the um, New York Times op-ed from last month by uh, uh, three of the post-liberals, uh, which it was basically that a Noam Chomsky view of of Foreign policy. It was a new left view. America is the bad actor. America is responsible for all that goes wrong in the world, and so the the answer to the problem of America is for America to basically um, stop it, to to, <laughs> to stop what do doing what it's been doing for seventy five years, and to look inward. Um, and, and that that again, it's it's a little bit. Different from some of the so-called old right arguments, you know, of Charles Lindbergh or Robert Taft uh, prior to the Second World War. War. Um, it, it is. It's a. It's a hostile view of American power, going to the po- going to what Noah was saying, um, and uh, how to combat this. Uh, this tendency is a real challenge. I mean, I, I agree that I don't think it's the mainstream. Among conservatives, or Republicans, um, but uh, because of media and social media, it's it, these arguments are amplified, and I think will um, uh, lead to a lot of confusion among the young, in particular.
3: And there, there's also another exacerbating effect here, which is that um, all our domestic squabbles, and this is this is another part of the of the of the present day right, big part of it, are about trolling everything is now um reduced to trolling the other side so if there's a sense that oh liberals are worked up about about right-wing voices defending putin let's 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 give it to him good and hard and that and that it has nothing to do with their theories on foreign policy it has nothing to do with how they view the world american force it is it is it is it becomes purely an argument, right. an argument based on sort of drive by shooting metaphorically of the other side.
0: Right. But, you know, they're They're coming up uh, in their, their their Occam's razor uh, time says that the argument to make politically at this moment is that Biden is weak and that Biden's weakness as a president and Biden's weakness in Afghanistan and Biden's weakness in suspending arms sales to Ukraine and Biden's weakness toward Putin uh, gave Putin the casus belli in his own way. I mean, it gave him the green light in his own way, and that uh, this is a failure of Biden, and it is time for Republicans to hold him accountable and to represent the the right way to do things. Siding with Putin, or essentially going with the idea that America's at fault and that Putin is righting a wrong, is a bad argument. It flies in the face of the winning argument which is that uh, there are two parties in the United States there's the Biden party and there's the non-Biden party and Biden has screwed everything up. And you remember, remember inflation it's about to get way worse. You know, you know our economic situation it's about to get way worse. Your your stock portfolio is about to is about to go down 20%. Your gas prices are going to go up $2 uh, at the pump. The supply chain problems are going to increase. And uh, that's his fault. For the right to adopt an argument that says it's not Biden's fault. It's the fault of hegemonic neoliberalism in the form of attitudes that led to the uh, removal of working class jobs in the Rust Belt. That is a bank shot, three dipsy, you know, doodle argument, and it's bad. It's like that's not the argument that politicians are going to want to make, and it's not something that's going to resonate with ordinary people who are going to be like, Gas is now two dollars more expensive than it was last week. Who do I blame? And the answer is you blame Putin for invading Ukraine, and then the second answer is going to be you blame Biden because his weakness helped allow. Putin to invade Ukraine and uh and if you want help or you want to punish somebody you're going to punish Biden. You're not going to punish Norman Podorens, <laughs> Put- <laughs> you know. You're not going to punish the neocons from 50 years ago who argued that America needed to be forthright and you know build up the defense budget and all of that. Like that's the bizarre thing about the trolling and the fights on the right and how and how Uh, parochial this is like this is a world epical world changing event and having tucker carlson complain that the thing is he doesn't have any problem with putin because he's not screwing with the you know the grade school curriculum is all well and good but you know you can have two arguments at the same time like you can say putin is really bad and say critical race theory is really bad and they're not connected
2: they're not. And also, and also, in fact, they could be connected. Well, they in could fact, also, the same could be, right? the same ideas of anti-Americanism uh, that infect the school curriculum are exactly what Putin parrots and what he thrives off of. If we are not confident in our country, um, okay. I, I will say just also, John, they, that most Republicans are making the argument that you just stated. Most, yeah. I can't think of an elected official who is not blaming all this on Biden, a Republican right. elected official. It's the Teal Peter thiel funded candidates. Right, right now, who are making these uh, awful, awful uh, arguments, blaming the United States um, and relatively pro-Putin uh, in their, in their um, inflection. And I would say it's not, one, both of those candidates are behind. And two, it's, it's going to be a live issue, especially already another candidate in the Ohio Republican Senate primary, James Timken, has come out and attacking J.D. Vance and saying, you know what, I'm with the 80,000 Ukrainian Americans who live in Ohio. That is a hugely important point I want to just stress, which is
0: there are, I think, 10 million self identified Polish Americans in the United States. That is, if you poll them, you ask people what their origin is, they will say they are Polish American. That's not a huge number, you know, but it is. You know what is it? Three percent of the country. Well, but then you add the, the
2: Lithuanian Americans, add Lithuanians, and the Est- add, you know the the Ukrainian,
0: add, yeah. add Romanians. I mean I, right. all of this. And I, I want to make one final point, and then and then we got to close out. Um, Tucker uh, Carlson, my old friend, uh, said something the other day or yesterday about Alexander Vinman. You know the sort of source of the. 2019 impeachment uh, national security official who seemed somehow to be partially the engineer and the leading spokesman for the idea that you know uh, Trump had done something impeachable with the phone call to Zelensky where he asked him to you know get dig up dirt on, on Hunter Biden and he said something like, Alexander Vindman wants you to fight for his home country because Vindman was born in Ukraine. Um, Alexander Vindman, I said this three years ago, when we talked about this and some people on the right started saying this. Alexander Vindman is a Jew. He, he left Ukraine uh, as a young man. Ukraine has a history, like Russia, of, of a, a naked and violent anti-Semitism. To refer to to claim that he has dual that a Jew, a Jewish, a Ukrainian Jew came to the United States, became an American citizen, and then spent his life serving the U.S. in the military is a dual loyalist for Ukraine is a disgusting act of vile anti Semitism. And Tucker's an old friend of mine, and it breaks my heart to talk this way about him, but it was it is shameful, it is disgusting, it is. Not only is it beneath him, it's beneath, it is, it, is, it is beneath contempt. And I, I have problems with Vindman. He seems to be a very vainglorious and self-righteous person. Um, and I, you know, and, uh, but, uh, so I'm, this is, I hold no brief for him, but um, uh, Jews are not natives of the, you know, the, uh, pretty much the exception of the United States and Israel. Jews are not natives of the countries in which they are born. They're not considered part of the native born population. They do not consider themselves part of the native born population because they are kept apart. They are they are They are othered and they are, you know, discriminated against. And that's why they leave. You see, that's why they go somewhere else if they get a chance. Uh, with that, let me once again remind you that commentary is going to have a live podcast on April 6th in Palm Beach, Florida. April 6th, Palm Beach, Florida, around five o'clock in the afternoon. Wednesday, April 6th. Go to commentary.org slash live podcast uh, if you want to find out how to attend and what's going on. Matt Conetti, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Matt's book, The Right. You can pre-order. It's coming out next month. Next month or the month after. I don't even remember. I don't even know Months what.
2: Month after. Uh, April Okay.
0: 19th. But you can pre-order it. That's the wonder of Amazon. Uh, and it's a remarkable book, and uh, there'll be more on this in due course. And for uh, Abe Noe and the Absent Christine, uh, this is John Hortz, Keep
3: the candle burning.